The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, welcome to Lever Time, the show where we try to make the world a little less shitty through the power of podcasting. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how police in the United States are actually not legally obligated to protect us in light of that horrific shooting in Texas last week. Also, a historic climate justice lawsuit is making its way through the courts, and we'll look at the people trying to stop it. Spoiler alert. It's the Biden administration. Then, later on, I'm going to be joined by the one and only Judd Apatow to talk about the power of comedy, cancel culture, and his awesome new HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. And this week, our paid subscribers will get to hear a bonus segment. It's my exclusive interview with a former gun industry executive who details how that industry specifically changed its marketing to flood the country with the AR-15 rifles that now define so many mass shootings. A reminder for our free listeners to head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber, giving you access to our premium podcast feed, plus a lot more. Before we get into all of that, and because this is our first episode, I just want to take one quick moment to introduce myself for those of you who don't know me. I'm a journalist, author, Oscar-nominated writer on the movie Don't Look Up, and I was the speechwriter for Bernie Sanders' 2020 presidential campaign. I've been working in and around politics and political media for several decades. Yes, I'm basically becoming an old man. In 2020, after the Bernie campaign, I started a newsletter with the aim of providing independent accountability journalism that covers government corruption and corporate influence in our politics. It's kind of what I've been doing for a lot of my life. I've written three books. This is the thing that I've been covering uh, for really 20 plus years. Now, in just two short years of doing this newsletter, it's grown into the lever, which has become a full-scale newsroom of reporters doing real investigative journalism that holds accountable the people in power. And that's thanks to our subscribers. And now we have this podcast, Lever Time. So what is this podcast going to be? Well, it's going to be a mix of things. Sometimes we're going to talk about the stuff in the news Sometimes we're going to do more in-depth coverage of the stories The Lever is reporting on. Sometimes we'll have guests to interview. But most importantly, we're going to cover serious issues, but we're not always going to take ourselves too seriously. The world is such a depressing fucking place right now. So we're going to try, when we can, to have a little fun as we fight against the forces slowly destroying organized human society and civilization. We're not going to be afraid to expose the people in power who are fucking with you. We're not going to be afraid to explain why they're fucking you. And we're absolutely going to tell you who's paying them to fuck you. Because to be totally honest, we don't have any time to mince words. That's not why we're here. Life is too short. So... That's my introductory spiel. 
I promise I'm not going to do a speech like that at the beginning of every episode, but it was worth saying to start this project. Lastly, I want to introduce the producer of Lever Time and my de facto sidekick, Producer Frank. What's up, Producer Frank? David, hello. It is good to be here on the first episode of Lever Time. Wow. I can't believe, I can't believe we're here today. We've, we're doing it. I know. We're fine. I'm, I'm, and for folks who are interested, this has taken a lot of time to get off the ground. It's not just, um, you know, it's not just you flip on the computer and do this. It's, it's been a ton of work. Frank and I have been working on this for a while. So I'm thrilled that we're starting now. And I just want to do a shout out. Shout out to everybody who pitched in to help us bring Frank aboard. Shout out to every all of our subscribers who really do make this stuff possible. I mean, seriously, we could not do this without our subscribers. Absolutely. And I'm super grateful to be here. Thank you, David, for hiring me. Thank you to everyone else for supporting me getting here. Um, and I'm excited to be a part of the show. I'm going to be the one asking the dumb questions. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna make sure if there's something that's not clear or a little too inside baseball, I'm going to be the dumb one <laughs> who pipes up and asks someone to, to So clarify. you're going to be like the Ed McMahon. You're going to be like Ed McMahon on, on uh, Johnny Carson. Absolutely, 100%. That is the role You also I was... made me one promise. You made me one promise. Frank made me a promise when he started that we would not make a podcast that was like Pod Save America. He made me that promise. I'm going to hold him to that promise. Well, it's just because it's my favorite, and I, I can't have more than one favorite podcast in my life. That's the, that's the real reason. Uh, this will not be Pod Save America. If it is Pod, it, honestly, if anybody hears this this show become Pod Save America, I want you to email us and tell us to just shut it down quickly because because if we become that, I, I just what's the point? What is the point? Okay, it's time to get to our first story. The big story this week was obviously the school shooting in Texas. I think people are feeling not only devastated by the shooting but also by that horrible feeling that nothing seems to change, or as Joe Biden put it, nothing will fundamentally change. There's really almost nothing original to say anymore about the gun violence epidemic because the facts are so obvious and clear, and they've been so obvious and clear for so long. But it's worth setting up this discussion with just a few simple facts, just to say them out loud so that we all know we're not going, like, totally insane. So I'm just going to recount a couple of facts, three facts. Fact one, guns are now the leading cause of death among American children. Fact two, the assault weapons ban, which, let's remember, was pushed by Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, signed by Bill Clinton. That assault weapons ban coincided with a reduction in mass shootings. When the ban expired in 2004, mass shootings afterwards tripled. If you need more evidence of that, take a look at the difference between three states. I found this stat. It's incredible. Fifteen years ago, California, Florida, and Texas had about the same rate of gun deaths. Since California tightened its gun laws, its gun death rate declined by 10% to one of the lowest rates in the country. By contrast, Florida, Texas, in the same time period, loosened their gun laws and their gun death rates climbed by 28 and 37%, respectively. So basically, we know the assault weapons bans work. Fact three, 
Mass shootings have repeatedly resulted in Republicans making the situation worse and Democrats doing nothing. I know that sounds like hyperbole. I know it. But here's the conclusion of a recent Harvard-UCLA study. This is their words, not mine. Quote, the annual number of laws that loosen gun restrictions doubles in the year following a mass shooting in states with Republican-controlled legislatures. There is no significant effect of mass shootings on laws enacted when there is a Democratic legislature. So those are the facts. You can't get around them. We know how to reduce the leading cause of death among kids, gun violence. And our country refuses to do it. And it's just worth saying that out loud to know that we're not all going insane. Now, in this Texas massacre, one thing a lot of people, I think, did not know about is police responsibility. A lot of the last few days of news have been driven by revelations that local police in Texas waited for nearly an hour without intervening to stop the shooter. And at the same time, police outside the school were apparently restraining parents from saving their own kids, including tackling, pepper spraying, and tasing them. I mean, just think about that, like being a parent, and, 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 and it's, it's like the worst possible thing you can imagine as a parent. I'm sure every parent who saw this kind of imagined it in their own lives. And all that highlights how in America, the police are not legally required to protect us. They're not legally required to protect people. I remember being shocked about that when a few years ago there was this headline in the New York Times. The headline was, officers had no duty to protect students in the Parkland massacre, a judge rules. This duty to protect, this idea of what duty the cops have to protect you or, or no duty to protect you, is something that I think we need to talk about. So we're going to talk about it right now with Alec Carrot Katsanis. He's a civil rights lawyer, public defender, and founder of Civil Rights Corps, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging systemic injustice in the United States legal system. He's also a former public defender. Alec, thanks for being here. I want to get right into this. In light of the shooting last week, we're talking about this idea called the duty to protect and how it relates to policing in the United States. And I think a lot of people, this is their first time ever hearing this phrase, duty to protect. Uh, and it all stems from a Supreme Court case, as I understand it, called Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. Let's first and foremost, why don't you explain what that case was and what precedent it established? So I think it's first just really important to take a step back and understand that there is no duty to protect people from any particular harms. So the Supreme Court has been clear uh, that police have absolutely no obligation to protect any particular person from any particular threat that they face from another private person. And really, Castle Rock is actually just a very ordinary case in which uh, a person was engaging in, you know, numerous attempts to get the police to protect um, and enforce um, a restraining order that she had obtained against um, her ex-husband. Um, and what ended up happening was the ex-husband, if I recall correctly from the case, it's been a while since I've read it, but the ex-husband ended up um, taking their, their children, kidnapping them, and then 
uh, murdering their children. And um, while he had kidnapped the children, the, the uh, wife had um, repeatedly uh, sought to have local police and enforce this restraining order and find the kids, et cetera. And they didn't act, they didn't do anything and they didn't prevent uh, the husband from killing the kids and then killing himself. And the case was, is actually in the media is, is I think often given more significance than it actually has. The real issue in the case was simply whether Colorado law had created a, what we call a property interest in when it sort of um, granted this restraining order to, to the wife and to the mother, uh, whether it had given her uh, an interest that could be enforceable um, under federal law. So the ultimate question in the case really came down to how the Supreme Court actually interpreted Colorado law. And that's why it, it's not ultimately as significant as let's say the DeShaney case, which I, I know um, we should probably talk about a little bit later. Um, yeah, and we, and we, we can get into that. I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of, my mind is reeling from the fact that Colorado seems to be, every gun situation, every gun debate in America seems to always trace back to Colorado where I'm coming to you from. I mean, the Castle Rock, Castle Rock is where you go down to get your, if you, they're, they're, it's a shopping mall with outlets. That's where you go to get this, uh, get you know, discount clothes if you if you if you need them, and you can get down there. And of course, another road on the gun debate leads to Colorado in this case. Um, and I think one thing when I started reading about this, I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember the Police Academy movies, where the, if the the motto in the Police Academy movies was was to protect and serve, like that was the motto of the police department. And, and what you're sort of saying is, is that that's actually, that may be the motto of the police, but Castle Rock, that case, and the DeShaney case, which I want to talk about, essentially said that's not actually legally what the mission of the police is. So, so what did DeShaney say? DeShaney is a case in which the um, Supreme Court held that there is no constitutional right um, to have the government protect you um, from certain harms from another private person. So for example, in DeShaney, there was a small child um, who was repeatedly being abused by his father. And the abuse was brought uh, time after time after time to social workers, by emergency room doctors and others to the, the child welfare officials in Wisconsin. And time after time after time, they did nothing. And they failed to protect this small child and then um, when he was a, a toddler, um, the father beat him so badly that he had permanent brain damage. And so the child's mother brought a lawsuit saying that the authorities had failed in their obligation to protect this child from the known abuse of the father. And the Supreme Court held that you have no constitutional right to be protected by a police or, or other government authorities from another private actor. I think that's a much more foundational case because that case establishes that, that there really is no constitutional right to, um, for the government to protect your body from physical harm from other private actors. Whereas the Castle Rock case is really an interpretation of whether Colorado had gone further than the US constitution and established as a matter of state law, certain enforceable property interests in restraining orders. Okay, so the, the, the police essentially now have the protection of Supreme Court precedent to basically not help people. 
and and obviously this relates to what happened in Texas in the sense that what we saw in Texas was police not going in to rescue children in fact at times using police force to restrain parents from themselves going in to rescue children i guess the follow up question is do you presume that if there are lawsuits in this case in the texas situation that these precedents will protect that police department i do partially because the entire point of decades of constitutional law in this area is to shield police from liability for their failure to um, follow the law. And I think it's very, very important. And maybe the most important thing for your listeners to take away from all of this is actually a higher level point. And that point is that every elite bureaucrat, politician, lawmaker, um, every person who's sort of in charge of institutions of power in our society understands something very important. And that is that although police market themselves as quote unquote law enforcement, they only ever enforce some laws against some people some of the time. So for example, all over the country, it's illegal to possess certain drugs, but those laws are completely unenforced on rich college campuses, private boarding schools, Wall Street banks where cocaine and other drugs are rampant for the last 40 years, they're ruthlessly and violently and brutally enforced in poor communities and communities of color. It's not because drug laws are only violated by poor people. It's because police make very particular choices about which laws to enforce against which people. So for example, Police routinely enforce shoplifting laws against very poor people who need food or shelter or diapers or whatever from the grocery store. They almost never enforce wage theft laws, which cost $50 billion a year. The same is true of tax evasion. Um, police and prosecutors and federal officials hardly ever enforce tax evasion laws, even though it costs a trillion dollars a year, which is about 100 times all other property crime combined. And I, and I go back to the dichotomy uh, when it comes to what police can and cannot be held accountable for. I mean, th there was a recent case, correct me if I'm wrong, just a couple months ago back, I think it was in October, about so-called qualified immunity, where the Supreme Court essentially said that police officers are entitled to special protection from being sued over their use of force against people. So if you take this together, and you could tell me if I'm wrong here, but if I, I take this together, the police uh, essentially cannot be held legally liable for not going in and enforcing the law, for instance, against a mass shooter at a school. And apparently they cannot be effectively held accountable for overzealous use of force against suspects. It seems to me that this is an entire architecture of jurisprudence designed to protect the police from being held accountable really for anything. And I think my question on that is, do you think it's that deliberate, right? Do you think the judges, the justices over many years have thought through it from that ideological perspective? Or are these a bunch of random rulings? Like, what do you think is behind all of it? I would say that the common thread in the two examples that you gave, so police have no obligation to protect people 
constitutionally, and they're protected when they do act illegally and do violate the law and do brutalize people, they're also protected. The common thread is that the elite people who construct and enforce our laws understand that the primary function of police is to preserve inequality. Police are never, and we're never pitched to the public. Um, for most of the history of the United States, they were first pitched as institutions to catch enslaved people who were running away. And then in the Northeast and many other parts of the country, uh, the rise of the modern police force was actually um, a, a sort of a, a, an attempt by big business to infiltrate and crush striking laborers. And so police were only started to be marketed as sort of like a public safety and like serve and protect. That's a latter half of the 20th century particularly as the rise of mass incarceration happened. Before that, they weren't even interested in this sort of propagandistic notion that they're here to serve and protect us. And so it's a relatively recent phenomenon, actually. For most of this country's history, people understood very well that the role of police was to preserve distributions of economic power and wealth. Um, police are the institution. If you own land and own property, even if you took that property from Native people or, or Black people, uh, when land was being routinely confiscated throughout the South from black families. Um, the police are the institution that you call to bring the force and violence of the state if someone tries to trespass on your land. It's the institutionalization of the bureaucracy of state violence. And so um, people, it's, it's not necessarily that every police officer and every prosecutor and every judge understands the full extent of how throughout US history, police are the violent arm that, that elites have used to maintain their wealth and property. I, I don't think every single person has that kind of like deliberate mental state, but the fact that police serve that function animates and determines at every critical turn in, the, in this country's history in terms of how the law around police was developed, it animates what kinds of laws are created and what kinds of doctrines are created. Because think about it like this. If for example, the Supreme Court in DeShaney had ruled a different way, and said that we all have an enforceable right to um, require the police to enforce the law and to be able to sue the government if the police don't enforce the law. Imagine all the laws that would then have to be enforced. We have a lot of pretty good laws on our books mm -hmm. that prevent um, violence by the government against us, but also that, that require certain um, basic uh, environmental protections and health protections and anti-discrimination protections and um, protections designed to help tenants and and workers and many of those laws are completely unenforced. So for example, um, there are over a hundred thousand known violations of the Clean Water Act every year. There are millions of violations of, of toxic and illegal dumping laws. Almost none of them are enforced. So what elites really appreciate in our society is that if everyone had an obligation to require the government to enforce the law, they'd also have to start enforcing all the laws that are designed to preserve equality and the environment and, and anti-discrimination. And, and so elites benefit from a world in which police are given the discretion to decide which laws to enforce, because then the police en masse can, and by and large, can choose to enforce only some laws against some people some of the time. I mean, this is such an important point. And, and, and it, it, there's two things that come to mind. One, what I hear you saying is that the statue for instance at the justice department where it's the with the blindfold where it's supposed to embody the idea that justice is blind that in fact these rulings create us deliberately 
a, a legal architecture that says justice doesn't have to be blind, that justice can be selective, that the, that, that the police can choose to do what they want to do and not do what they don't want to do whenever they want. It also kind of reminds me that maybe the depiction of the police in The Big Lebowski was exactly right. Stay out of Malibu, Lebowski! Ow. Stay out of Malibu, deadbeat! Keep your ugly fucking gold bricking ass out of my beach community. That clip from The Big Lebowski where the police is basically being used to, to, to essentially protect rich people's property, for instance, that essentially is the paradigm. And I think that's become really, really obvious. So I want to go back to this Texas situation. Not only does it seem that the police, at least right now, that they botch their entire response. But we've also learned that the police lied about how the events unfolded. So, so going back to the specific of this mass shooting, how do you interpret this? Does it seem like a good faith mistake? Is there something more nefarious happening here? I mean, I guess, what do you say to those who say, listen, this is a, these are split-second decisions. It's a, it's a very difficult situation. A lot of times, uh, people just, they make the wrong decision. What's your, what's your response to that within the context of, of what happened in Texas? There was some version of a significant police lie in virtually every case I handled as a public defender. I think what most people need to understand is that police lying is utterly institutional and normal. Police themselves call it test-a-lying, but it's, it's much more mundane than that. I think it's helpful to start with a couple of examples. Think about the murder of George Floyd. Think about what the press release from the Minneapolis police said right after, the, right after George Floyd was murdered. They didn't know that someone from across the street was video recording it. And so the entire incident was portrayed as a, a man dying in a medical incident and no use of force was used. Mm -hmm. um, think about what the police said after they murdered Eric Garner. Um, and now we have that on video. Think about what the police said when they executed Walter Scott and Laquan McDonald. In each case, the police um, report and media statements afterward were complete fabrications. But that's not unusual. It's not like police only do that when they murder people. Um, through and through, police lie virtually all of the time. And, and, and different types of lies have different reasons. So um, many times police lie about particular uh, events to cover up their own misconduct. That's probably the police lie that most people are familiar with. But police have to lie at a much deeper level. Keep in mind, for example, the, if the purpose and function of police is to preserve um, the wealth of people who own things and existing distributions of power, they're sort of constantly and existentially in this kind of lie that, that their goal is to serve and protect and promote safety. That leads to all kinds of subsidiary lies. Like for example, they lie about crime data. They lie about rates of crime going up or down. They lie about in, in many parts of the country that are now, we're now seeing, you know, certain types of so-called criminal justice reforms, police are constantly every day being caught lying about the effects of those reforms on supposed crime. Um, so they're, they're constantly having to try to trick people into thinking that police are effective at doing what they're doing and that what they're doing is actually promoting some kind of health, safety, and well-being. So I think when you look at, at the massacre in Texas, um, it's, completely consistent with the history of how these institutions operate to reflexively um, tell a story that is not true, but that 
attempts to minimize the extent to which police's incompetence and corruption and, and mistakes are widely known in the public. They understand very, very well. I think one final example I'll give you is to show how, how well the police understand this function is I testified recently at a hearing in, in the San Francisco government. The San Francisco government uncovered that the police w- had a nine-person dedicated PR team and unit. The head of the unit was making almost $300,000 a year. This doesn't even count all the police officers who work part-time on police PR. It doesn't count the eight-person unit at the mayor's office that also does police PR. The goal of all of these people and millions of dollars in, in a just one city like San Francisco is to manipulate the news. And something that happened was fascinating that, that the government in San Francisco uncovered is that the police have a separate unit, the community engagement unit that is constantly doing focus group and other research to figure out how to frame things for the public. And that same unit has multiple officers whose entire job for that unit is to respond to the scenes of police shooting and police violence and get on top of the media narrative right away spin things, start telling a story, because the way you spin things right away, this is one of the basics of crisis communications, you can prevent a story from going viral by telling a particular version of it right away. I mean, it's so, it's so, it's so what you're telling is, is I'm both not surprised and it's so dystopian that there is a unit in a police force. And I'm sure, I'm sure San Francisco is not an isolated incident. I want to just ask you the flip side question. I want to play devil's advocate here for a second. A lot of the arguments that you're making about police are echoed in a, in a slightly different form by the gun rights movement, which will say that, this, that, that people need to be able to arm up in order to protect themselves against state violence, against state encroachment, against an overbearing government, which includes the long arm of the police. What do you say to that? What, what, what's the response to that when you hear the gun rights movement make some of these same arguments to try to justify their position on allowing, for instance, assault weapons to be everywhere and anywhere in the United States? Before I answer that question, let me just point out a central hypocrisy in the gun rights movement's arguments, because these are often the very same people that are the most vociferous in their claims that black people shouldn't own guns. Mm -hmm. So they -hmm. apply this self-defense argument um, in 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 incredibly aggressive and vigorous ways when the sort of paradigmatic gun owner is is a white Christian. Um, But through a variety of different mechanisms, most prominently through um, local, state, and federal laws that restrict um, who can own weapons. And for example, like if you have a felony conviction, it's actually a federal felony to own a weapon. So if you um, had a federal drug felony from you know, 30 years ago uh, and you live in a so-called high crime community that police sort of market as one of the most dangerous communities, let's say you live in the inner city of Chicago where right-wingers and, and police unions are marketing that as an incredibly violent place to live. It's actually a federal felony to carry this, this gun for your protection, even though in other contexts it's seen as like a, as like a fund- fundamental foundational constitutional right. And, and so um, one of the, the reasons you can, you can see that it's not really about self-defense and protection is the conservative courts and, and right-wing establishment um, throughout the country has um, over the last several decades worked to ensure that many of the poorest and most vulnerable people in our society um, 
can be prosecuted for exercising what in every other context they call a constitutional right. But let me, let me answer your, your bigger question. And I think there's a much more profound um, and insidious flaw at the core of a lot of these gun rights arguments. And that is that they are assuming a society that is as unequal and violent as our current society, and then suggesting a policy, um, more and more guns for everyone that, that almost echoes some kind of like global arms race. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that that policy prescription is actually contrary to all of the evidence. So for example, there's overwhelming evidence that um, putting more guns in people's hands actually leads to more deaths through suicides and accidents. There's overwhelming evidence that putting more guns in schools and more police in schools actually increases fatalities in school shootings and has other, many other negative effects. But the key point is that it assumes no other interventions to make our society more equal. And so a much better policy response, one much more consistent with the scientific evidence would be to address the underlying root causes of harm and violence and alienation and lack of community connection. And I'm talking about things like investment in early childhood education and mental and medical health care, in safe places to live, in um, theater, music, poetry, arts programs for kids. These are all things that the evidence actually shows leads to less violence of all sorts, including shootings. And so if, if, you, if you take as a given and say we can never fix the level of harm and violence and inequality in our society, then I can see why you might mistakenly be led down the path of saying, well, everyone needs to just have more guns because we're in this big, big arm race. Right. Problems aren't fixable. Just load up, get as many weapons as you can to prevent whatever dystopia you, you fear uh, and that you see on your, on your television. So very quickly, I just want to ask, and we're running out of time here, but I want to ask very quickly, out of the Texas shooting, if you could wave a wand and something good or positive came out of it vis-a-vis police reform or gun policy, but l- not, let's stick on police because that's what we've been talking about. What would it be if you could, if you were the governor of Texas, if you were the president of the United States, what would the thing to come out of something so awful as the Texas shooting be as it relates to police? I would just follow the overwhelming scientific evidence and I would commit massive investments to early childhood education and free preschool, universal preschool throughout Texas. I would take all of the money, I would remove all of the cops from schools and take all of the resources that's being spent on on cops in schools, which with the research shows actually leads to more harm and more violence for kids. And I would invest that in evidence-based solutions, like getting kids more teachers and more attention and more um, sort of introduction to um, like educational opportunities at the earliest possible age. That is really the, the, the solution that is most consistent with evidence. And yet it's also the solution that is hardest to imagine um, the political class supporting. Thanks so much for taking the time with with us today. Thanks for digging into such a difficult issue. Uh, Very quickly, Alec, uh, where can our audience find and support your work? You can find me on Twitter at Equality Alec, and you can also um, check out my book, Usual Cruelty. And you can also support the work of our amazing civil rights organization, which is called Civil Rights Corps. You can find us at Civ Rights Corps on Instagram and Twitter. Alec, thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Okay, 
It's time to get to our Lever story for today. We're going to be joined by the Lever's Julia Rock to discuss a piece that she wrote about a landmark climate justice lawsuit in which a group of teenagers are suing the federal government for the right to a livable planet. You heard that right. They are suing there in court, aiming to secure a constitutional right to survive the climate apocalypse. Yes, might have gotten away with it too. It wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs. Blasted meddling kids. And it would have been mine if it hadn't been for those meddling kids. Joining us now is Julia Rock. What's up, Julia? Surviving the first uh, heat wave in New York City. Ah, per- perfectly on point to uh, a climate lawsuit trying to secure a right to survive the climate crisis. Okay, so you wrote this piece for The Lever about this historic climate lawsuit. It's For those interested, it's called Juliana versus the United States. Let's first and foremost go through the broad strokes of what this case is, just the, the really the, the, the top line of what's going on here. Tell us. Yeah, so as you said, this is really a one-of-a-kind lawsuit. Um, 21 young people sued the federal government back in 2015 during the Obama administration trying to stake a claim to a constitutional right to a livable planet, as you said. This case is predicated on, in part, on the idea that the government knew about climate change. I mean, we've heard a lot of these stories and some cases about what did Exxon know, what did, what did the oil industry at large know, what did the advertising industry know. This pivots around the idea that the government actually knew about climate change a lot longer than it is let on or that lots of people knew about. Why is that so important legally to this case? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, as you pointed out, we've seen all these news stories and investigations about, you know, Exxon published this scientific report in in the 1970s about uh, the impacts of climate change. Well, well, in this case, um, there, there's sort of this long brief written by this guy, Gus Speth. He, he worked in the Jimmy Carter administration and then founded the Natural Resources Defense Council, sort of outlining what, what the federal government has known since the 1970s about not just climate change, but about how, you know, the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure and the fossil energy system is contributing to climate change. And the reason that matters legally is, you know, it's one thing for the government to do something that is actively harming people. It's another thing for the government to do something that is actively harming people that it knows it's doing to actively harm people. So, you know, the lawyers will often bring up um, an analogy in this case, which is, you know, there's a difference between the government sending a kid to a foster home um, that is going to be, you know, where the the kid might face harm, that might be dangerous, you know, as opposed to um, a parent uh, causing harm to their kid. Because in one case, sort of, the the government is the actual perpetrator of the harm, whereas in another case, it sort of has a a passive role. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a moment. And when we get back in a moment, we're going to talk about what the Biden administration is doing in this case. Which side is it on? See if you can guess. All right, look, if you're listening to this show, you know Soft when you see it. Soft is a Democratic House member pledging to be for a $15 minimum wage and then immediately backing down. Soft is a Democratic senator pledging to tax billionaires and then betraying the promise. Soft is Joe Biden saying he supports unions and then backing down to lobbyists. 
But even the Democrats in Washington aren't as soft as Sheets and Giggles eucalyptus sheets. Sheets and Giggles should be the place you get your sheets because they're awesome. They're unlike anything you've ever tried. They're naturally softer than even the best cotton and they're temperature regulating. They keep hot sleepers cool and cold sleepers warm, even in the same bed. This is particularly important in places like where I live, Colorado, and where the temperature fluctuates all over the place. The cool thing is that Colin, the founder of Sheets and Giggles, is mission driven. He's a guy right here in my hometown of Denver, who's been a longtime reader of the Levers journalism. He's been pushing Colorado to enact a public health insurance option. And he's making sure Sheets and Giggles products are made sustainably and ship in zero plastic packaging. Let me give you an example. Their sheets use 96% less water than cotton, 30% less energy than cotton to make them. For comparison, a single set of polyester sheets can leach 10 million microplastic fibers into the waterways every year, just through the laundry. So look, if you want to support a business that supports our journalism and is values driven, Sheets and Giggles is for you. Go to sheetsgiggles.com slash lever. That's sheetsgiggles.com slash lever for a 15% discount and get yourself set up today. Their sheets are softer than the Biden administration, and you're helping support a great company that's making our journalism possible. Welcome back. We're here with the Levers' Julia Rock discussing her recent big story on that landmark climate justice lawsuit called Juliana versus the United States. All right. I, I want to get into what the Biden administration is doing in this case, because, of course, the kids are suing the U.S. government, which is now represented by the Biden administration. Uh, this case has been going on before that. It's been going on since uh, I think it was the Obama administration to 2015. So when you tell us what the Biden administration is doing, tell us also, give us some context on, on how the Obama and Trump administrations dealt with this case as well. Yeah. So when the case was first filed um, in, in 2015 against the Obama administration for, you know, massively expanding fossil fuel infrastructure, despite knowing about the harms of, of um, climate change, the Obama administration Im immediately moved to dismiss the lawsuit. Um, you know, they didn't they didn't want this this case to go to court. Trump took office soon after that and, and took an even more aggressive approach um, to keeping the lawsuit out of the courtroom. It actually you know, moved up through the federal district courts to the circuit courts. Um, and the Trump administration, I think on six different occasions, made emergency pleas to the Supreme Court shadow docket um, in order to prevent the case from ever seeing seeing the light. Hold of on, it. hold on, hold on, hold on. What's the shadow docket? Yeah, so the shadow docket is um, uh, sort of a way that the Supreme Court handles emergency cases or emergency pleas, at least what they would like to designate as emergency cases without really any public scrutiny. So there aren't any hearings on these cases. Most of the times when um, an opinion comes down, there's no written opinion. You don't know what the vote was. It's this very shady way the Supreme Court can make really consequential decisions without anybody knowing you know, what the reasoning was um, and, and who voted which way. I mean, this is like sci-fi movie shit, right? Like this is like this secret back room, smoky room where uh, nine people come together and just decide giant precedents and 
laws and interpretations that affect millions of people for the rest of our lives, all in secret. I know, I know that, that that sounds conspiratorial, but that, that's basically what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the court's use of the shadow docket has really exploded in the past, like, 10 years, Shocker. I think. <laughs> because Shocker. you know, as the as the court has has turned to the right. Um, but I, I thought I thought the the American right was all about transparency and and you know everyone showing yeah, what's going on debate. inside of government. I guess not, huh? It probably shouldn't come as any surprise that that the shadow docket has um, been used in in really consequential environmental cases, not just the Juliana lawsuit. Although no case has been on the shadow docket as many times as the Juliana case has. Okay, so. Joe Biden comes into office. He's portraying himself as Mr. Climate. Where does he come down? Where does his Justice Department come down? Yeah, well, so last fall, the the plaintiffs sort of had settlement talks with the Biden administration. And and what they were hoping to come to was a deal with the administration to um, reduce carbon emissions uh, through a process that would be overseen by the courts. And I think they sort of thought, like, this is something Biden could do without Congress, uh, come to a deal and, and have sort of this court-mandated order to, to reduce carbon emissions. And instead, what the plaintiff said is, you know, the administration didn't really come to the table in good faith. They didn't really have any um, interest in coming to an agreement on this. So now uh, the case is awaiting a decision from a judge that would allow it to go to trial. And the plaintiffs expect that to be a favorable decision. Hey, guys, I, I've, I've, I've got kind of a dumb question here. Uh, other than like being in bed with the fossil fuel industries, like what what other reason do like democratic administrations like the Obama administration and the Biden administration what what other reasons do they have to be fighting this lawsuit? I think that's that's sort of a big caveat other than being in bed with the fossil fuel industry because I think that is the main story, you know, of US climate politics over the past 40 or 50 years when, you know, the government has known about climate change and not really done anything about it. So I think that's a huge element. I think also something we've seen in other parts of our reporting is that you know, the Justice Department hasn't really changed its stances on cases since the Trump years. There's there's sort of a lot of inertia there. Uh, Merrick Garland is in charge. There's not really an interest it seems to use, you know, the Justice Department as as maybe a force for social progress. I want to ask the question about if they get a favorable ruling. If they get a favorable ruling, what do these, what are the plaintiffs, what are the kids, the lawyers for the kids, think the Biden administration will do then? So, so what the plaintiffs' lawyers have said is that, you know, in their talks with Justice Department lawyers, Justice Department lawyers have said, yeah, we don't think this case should go to trial. We're going to do everything in our power to stop it, including um, appealing the case to, to for an emergency order on the shadow docket to block it from going to trial. They do not want a big public trial on this case. They have made that very clear to the plaintiffs' lawyers. And I, and I, I guess I want to get into what the upshot of a case like this, what the folks, the Biden administration folks, what the government is so afraid of. Like, if this case is successful, if they actually establish a constitutional right for future generations to survive the climate crisis, what does that mean in practice? Because I think knowing that will tell us what the government is so afraid of. Yeah, well, what they're so afraid of is, you know, every federal government uh, regulation, every law, every policy being subject to a test of, is this going to threaten um, um, the future of a livable planet? So any law could be challenged on the premise that it's going to increase uh, carbon emissions and, and continue to heat up the planet. And, it, you know, what they're saying is like, 
we can't do that. That's too much for us to do. It's like uh, it's like if somebody made a movie about an asteroid headed towards Earth, and then the Congress and lawmakers had to consider that legislatively. What do we do about this? It's like a court case saying we don't actually. The government's position is we don't want to actually have to even consider the comet. It's 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 like straight out of our goddamn movie. Well, and it's and funny, David, because back in I think it was the spring of 2020, a judge actually used that analogy. Like it's like there's a comet Get out of here. towards Earth. Yes, yes, it comes up in a brief. Life imitating art, imitating life. It's it's. Well, you made me feel like the uh, the metaphor for the movie was was spot on. <laughs> and I know there were folks who were saying, "Oh, it's not a perfect climate metaphor," but but there you go. Now, look, you actually spoke to one of the youth plaintiffs, Nathan Barron, about how being a part of this lawsuit has influenced his whole worldview. And I, and I want to take a listen to what he told you. It's definitely like it's it helped me grow up really quickly, especially in realizing that there it isn't a partisan issue. Um, it, and, and I mean, I don't mean that in like a sing song, like everyone's supporting it. I literally mean the exact opposite. Right. I, that that from the get go, this like climate champion president who is often put on a pedestal. Um, and, I, you know, there are many things to like about Obama, but like, you know, it, it, it was pretty quick that the powers that be are going to be fighting alongside them. And, you know, of course, when Trump came into office, the fossil fuel industry pulled itself out voluntarily because they just assumed they wouldn't need to pay all those all that money anymore. Like, no, like just because a Democrat is in, is in office doesn't mean that suddenly we need to stop fighting. Did you get a sense from Nathan about whether the plaintiffs, the kids in this case, are feeling discouraged at this point? Are they, are they do you think they're feeling hopeful about it? I, I mean, are, where do you think their heads are at? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think as Nathan said, you know, a lot of these kids were in, you know, middle school during the Obama years when this lawsuit was filed and immediately Obama tried to miss the, uh, dismiss the case. So as he points out, they, they haven't really had any, you know, belief that um, um, the Democrats were going to solve the climate crisis without putting up a huge fight. So I think with him, it's like less a question of being hopeful or discouraged and more realizing like, I'm going to be fighting for this until the day I die. Uh, so, I mean, I guess this is another example of hope and change becoming more of the same. And and frankly, I'm actually, I, I, I'm sort of happy to hear that that clip from Nathan, kind of a revelation that the powers that be are not here to save us, that it's going to take a, a, a case or, or cases like this, that the the notion of the great president coming here to save us is just, uh, it's encouraging in a sense to hear young people have that realization because that is the realization. And I want to ask a question related to that, which is, has there been any kind of institutional support for this case? Or is it kind of like the adults are sort of, and the envir major environmental groups and the kind of... Uh, big time think tanks in DC and the like, are they all just kind of eye rolling this? No, that's a great question. I think a lot of observers have been surprised by just how much institutional support the case has gotten. There was a group of, I think, six Democratic attorney generals that wrote um, an amicus brief in favor of the plaintiffs. There were maybe 50 Congress people who urged the Biden administration to come to the table on this case. Um, and there actually have been a lot of law professors you know, who are almost surprised by how quickly 
um, judges thinking on climate is changing. And that that has been, I think, a point of optimism for them. You know, in one of the during the first year or two um, that this case was being litigated, uh, a federal judge said, like, I have no doubt that there is a constitutional right to a livable planet. And you know, we probably can't expect this Supreme Court to make the same claim, but that is really a profound shift in in legal thinking on the climate crisis. Now, I can hear some of our listeners eye rolling. I know it's hard to hear the idea here eye rolling. I've mixed my metaphors, but I can I can kind of hear the sighing. I can hear the eyes in the sockets rolling from this vantage point. Oh, well, the idea that we're going to solve the climate crisis by relying on the Supreme Court is ridiculous because ultimately this case could get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court are it's basically a panel of assholes who don't seem to have any regard for the future of the country for for really anything I mean they are truly these are nihilists so I guess what's your response what's the plaintiff's response to this idea that ultimately this entire strategy is predicated on relying on uh, six assholes on the Supreme Court to suddenly be good people. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I would say, say about this that sort of surprised me over the course of reporting this story is even though the plaintiffs have not gotten like a favorable ruling, um, you know, okay, this case can go to trial or yes, there is, you know, this constitutional right that you're claiming exists. They have gotten judges, you know, to, federal judges to say or write down really consequential things about the climate crisis. So there was an example, um, you know, I think it was the the federal district, uh, federal circuit court um, dismissed the case because they said the plaintiffs didn't have standing in a particular way. But they also said um, that, you know, humans burning fossil fuels is heating up the planet. And I saw like on the websites of different corporate law firms saying, well, this is a really concerning precedent for them to, you know, draw the link between burning fossil fuels and climate change. Oh, it's, um, it's really, con really concerning. Really concerning. Admit, admit, or, the, admit or, the science <laughs> of, of what's going on. A, a judge said in some hearing on the case, like, how could I possibly exercise any other right if I cannot breathe the air outside? So I think even though there hasn't been an opinion, you know, entrenching this constitutional right. It is forcing the courts to acknowledge these things that for so long they haven't been forced to acknowledge. And I think the plaintiffs would say that's, um, you know, that's been that's been very worthwhile. The other thing that the plaintiffs lawyers say is, well, we're actually making a very conservative legal argument. Um, they're, they're, uh, it's, it's based on this legal principle called the public trust doctrine, which which goes back to Roman law. It's um, it's sort of a common law issue. And, and they're sort of saying we're making a conservative appeal to a conservative bench. And I'm not sure anybody on the Supreme Court is actually an ideologue. I think maybe, you know, the right wing judges are just always going to be in, in favor of business. And honestly, some of the Democratic judges as well. Um, but it is sort of a compelling argument. I mean, it does. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but it does stand to reason that if there's a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that you cannot have life, liberty, or happiness on a planet where that doesn't support human life, right? I mean, that, there's sort of a fundamental point here. So I guess the final thing I would ask you is very quickly is, what's the status of this case now? What happens next? And if folks listening to this are interested in getting involved, is there anything they can do to support the plaintiffs? 
Yeah, so it seems like what's going to happen next is um, the original federal court where the lawsuit was filed is going to rule that it can proceed to a trial. Um, and then the Biden administration is going to do whatever it can to block that from happening. So probably the best way to support the plaintiffs is to pressure the, the Biden administration, you know, however you can to let this, let this um, lawsuit see the light of day. Julia, great reporting. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Next up, we're going to the place where politics and comedy mix. We're going to talk with comedian and filmmaker Judd Apatow about his new HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. Just a heads up, you're also going to hear the voice of Joel Warner, who's The Lever's managing editor, and he's a total comedy aficionado who wrote a whole book about humor. Joel joined us for this interview. Thank you so much for doing this. We, we really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for doing the the documentary on George Carlin. Uh, I actually saw George Carlin towards the, uh, relatively towards the end of his life when he uh, was touring. He came to Helena, Montana, and we were surprised. We were living in Helena, Montana, and we were surprised that he, somebody of his fame and caliber, would come all the way out to Helena, Montana. Um, I guess my first question for you on this is the, the HBO special is called George Carlin's American Dream. What do you mean to transmit in that title, like, what is his dream? What's the meaning of the title? Well, the American Dream was a, a a piece that he did where he basically said that nothing is working and the it's all rigged, it's all going down the drain, and, uh, you know, they call it the American Dream because you have to be asleep to believe it, that we're all being scammed. So... The title of the documentary is really where he landed with his comedy and his philosophy, you know, near the you know the end of his life. Do you think him, if he was alive today, I mean, what would I mean? When we're talking to you right now in the middle of what feels like a completely out of control moment in our history, what I guess what do you, what do you think his take would be on what's going on? Like, would his take be? I, you know, everything I've been saying is, has come true. Where do you think he'd come, he'd come down? I think that he was someone who thought that a lot of these things were very simple, right? Just that we're, we're not paying attention to the obvious. What, what is the obvious? Other countries don't have these laws related to guns and they don't have this problem. So we can say all, all day long, oh, it should be this, it should be that. We have to give all the teachers guns. But the truth is, our, our laws don't work at all. And it's all a smoke screen, right? It's a smoke screen so the NRA can exist, so certain people get rich off the NRA, so certain money can be given to politicians so they can retain power through the NRA. It's all a scam for gun manufacturers to make money. And... The main thing he would always say is they don't care about you. They don't care about you. And it's like someone was talking to me about about Putin. And they were saying, we, we debate this issue and that issue and Russia and the history of Russia and territories. And they said, he's a thief. It's all a smokescreen because he stole a billion dollars or, or a trillion dollars. And everything else is nonsense. He doesn't care about any of it. It's just people trying not to get caught and they have to play that game till they're in the grave. 
And and I think that George Carlin would say, of course this is happening. Why wouldn't this happen right now based on how our laws work and how the government works and how dark money works? So one thing I want to ask about uh, was at the beginning of the documentary, uh, you have these social media posts kind of noting uh, just how how relevant what Carlin said uh, still is today. So one thing I want to ask you, though, is that why for you did you decide it was a like time to to put out this documentary. Why, why explore uh, George Carlin right now? Well, on one level, he's the person that made me want to be a comedian. He's who we all listened to when we were 10 years old and first heard comedians cursing and first learned about critical thinking and challenging authority. You know, he's, he's the reason why a lot of people wanted to be funny and thought that would be cool. And, and, and he gave us a way of looking at the world. But also... As someone who's exhausted from what's happened in the the Trump years and everything that uh, we've witnessed, it certainly felt like a moment to have someone who spoke on a lot of these issues to 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 give them a forum, even post their their passing, to have people debate his ideas and his interpretation of of how our country is working at or you know how our country is really not working at all. I want to ask about the the scope of his career, because my my view of George Carlin or my understanding of George Carlin was he was always super famous, this name you always heard, but he never was, I never, he was never seemed, um, and I say this lovingly, he, he wasn't seen as mainstream. Right. He was this person who was so well known and his name was so well known, but he he wasn't like a necessarily like a like a movie star. And, and so one thing I, I, I'm curious about is his how do you think he became so well known while also being almost at arm's length from the very top of pop culture? Well, the truth is that most people are not at the top of pop culture. The top of pop culture is usually pretty, uh, I mean, how, how, how can I say this nicely? The very top of it doesn't challenge you that much. He, he, he's really challenging people's core beliefs, their core faiths. You know, a lot of his act was about how he didn't believe in God. And, he, you know, he, he had that bit where he said, you know, God, you know, God has these, Ten, 10 rules, and if you don't follow them, you will burn in hell for all eternity. But he loves you, and he needs money. He's all-powerful, but very bad with money. And those are not mainstream ideas to most people, and he went really hard for things that many Americans like, such as their guns and their military and capitalism. So... He definitely wasn't the the person whose stuff goes down easily, but most comedians are not at the top of the world and and pop culture. I mean, comedians usually take strong stands. Occasionally, someone's gigantic, but he's someone who was around since 1960 and was always there, always doing interesting work, and in a lot of ways, more like Bob Dylan. I mean, how many people go to Bob Dylan concerts? Yeah, he's on the road all the time. He's not selling... Beyonce level numbers of records, but every once in a while he puts out another masterwork and we appreciate that. We check in with him 
from time to time. The the stages of Carlin's career. Um, I, I want to ask you to just for folks who don't know about those stages, just briefly to go through them. Um, and I also want to, when you go through them, I I I want to know your feelings on whether he struggled with the idea that the more provocative he was, uh, the more difficult he could make his, his, his path, the more difficult, the more resistance he would face. Well, he started out in a, in a comedy team with Jack Burns, who was later in a very famous team called Burns and Schreiber. He's an early Second City person. And then he went solo, and he was a little bit political, but it got softened because of the needs of television. So if you went on the Merv Griffin show a lot or the, the talk shows, you really couldn't challenge things that deeply. So he would do the hippy-dippy weatherman and the conceptuals, one-man sketches, things like that. And then he decided that he wanted to be who he really was. He, he got fired in Las Vegas for cursing, and he got fired in Wisconsin at the Playboy Club for speaking out against Vietnam and his act. And he decided to grow his hair and grow his beard and become a rebel comedian around 1970. And that's when he had his first gigantic fame, probably his biggest fame. And then around the late 70s, he kind of ran out of gas. In the early 80s, he had a heart attack and heart problems. And I think he tried to calm his thing down. And it became a little more like a place for my stuff and examining words and language. And it was a softer act. And then he saw Sam Kinison and thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my life breathing this guy's dust. And he said, I got to become a better writer and I, I, I need to be bolder. And in a lot of ways, the last run of his career was about out Kinnison, Sam Kinison. And he was inspired by the competition. He was one of those people who always thought, I'm not going to get older and suddenly just be corny and bad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to evolve. I'm going to keep challenging the audience and I'm going to keep digging. And then he became more of a writer. And in the last phase, he had a a comedic stance which was it's over humanity is over we're all going to die we're, we're the planet is going to shake us off like fleas and I'm going to laugh and watch the show and it was really dark and back then a lot of people thought it was too dark but now you look at what's happening and you realize it was someone being so dark they're trying to I think push you into the light like, I'm old. I'm giving up. It's not getting solved while I'm alive. But I, I think the underlying message was, I'm going to go dark for comedy, but maybe you should get involved and try to fix it. You know, that's that's when I saw him in Helena, Montana. That's where he, that's that's the stage he was in. It was, I think it was 2007, maybe late 2006. And I I remember walking out of that and, and I mean, he was hilarious. He was great, but it was dark. And I, I was, I guess, what, 15 years ago now, so I was younger and more idealistic. And I, I remember thinking both what he said was true and tapped into core truths, but that is there a risk of so that, that it helps demoralize people? And so I wonder when, when you hear George Carlin, even today, uh, the clips that keep being uh, recycled, rightly so, whether there's a concern that it's not self-fulfilling prophecy, but that it can demoralize people because the truths are so true. I, I think that that's the challenge to the country. 
is are we going to run out of gas? I mean, what is don't look up but a George Carlin routine? You know, when I think about it, I think, what what did you guys do? It's really, you said, I need to kick you all in the fucking balls. Like, wake the fuck up. I'm going to melt Leonardo DiCaprio so you understand the stakes here, right? And that is what George Carlin was doing. He was just saying... This is this is all falling apart, you know. The you know he the table is tilted, you know that this is what the American dream bit was about. And so, in a moment like right now, do you go march? Do you donate money to uh, you know a charity uh, to fight for a woman's right to choose or gun control or for a politician, uh, or do you just go? It's just too much. I'm just going to watch 90 Day Fiance and go to sleep. And I think a big thing George Carlin said was, you know, we are an uneducated, uninvolved electorate and we get the politicians who are uneducated and don't serve our interests. And it's basically our fault. He, he used to say, garbage in, garbage out. And when you see that women uh, are, are very close to losing their right uh, to choose, and there's a lot of rights that disappear right after that if Roe versus Wade goes down... Wouldn't you think that every woman in this country would vote to get rid of all the people that just took away all of their power over their own medical choices and their bodies? And they'll either do it or they won't, right? And if you're a young kid and you're 18 to 25, wouldn't you try to vote out all the people who are against gun control? And we'll see. If kids vote at 50% like they usually do, nothing changes. If they suddenly voted at 85%, maybe everything could change. I mean, it, it is like a frustration baked in there, a frustration with how docile the population is. Like, I sense that from George Carlin's work, a kind of underlying frustration with how much the population, how much bullshit the population is willing to tolerate. I mean, is that a, is that a fair characterization yeah. that that's underneath a lot of what he was talking about? When he said, we gave up everything for gizmos. We gave everything up for a phone that makes pancakes and rubs your balls. That's the line that he said. But he, you know, the idea of like numbing the masses with technology and toys and shopping, he really felt like the powers that be want us all fighting and distracted and uneducated so they could steal the money. And they, they, they want us obsessed with you know, street crime, but not white collar, collar crime. And that's what we see right now. We, you know, we see Elon Musk basically abandon all rights for everybody so he can make sure his tax rate is what he wants it to be. So in this moment, when we're dealing with all of these things and we need people to be progressive, He's like, I don't care about LGBTQ rights. I don't care about a woman's right to choose. I don't care about sane gun laws. I don't care about uh, getting rid of dark money in politics. All I care about is my tax rate. And that's what George Carlin was saying that most of those people were about. They, they weren't looking out for you. They were looking out so that their 200 billion, God forbid, doesn't turn into 100 billion. Why, why do you think there hasn't been, or maybe you, you think there has been, but I, but I presume you you think that 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 there hasn't been another George Carlin, uh, uh, and I and and if you do think that, why do you think that is? Is it harder to be a George Carlin now than it was, or is it just people are cowards? Like why not? 
I, I think that probably the truth is that we're drowning in George Carlin's. It's not that we don't have George Carlin. If you took the best comedy that Samantha Bee or Amber Ruffin or Colbert or John Oliver and you put it together, it's probably historically brilliant. But the culture is the, about the fact that we have way too much stuff so nothing has the impact it should have because it's in a sea of other stuff. There weren't as many specials when George Carlin was putting out specials. It wasn't a world of social media in 2008. But it is interesting that when we start talking about abortion, everyone passes around the George Carlin routine and they're not passing around anyone else's routine. That's the thing I find interesting. It's not even like they're saying, oh, here's the great Bill Hicks bit about it or or whoever. No one else's routine is going around. And I think that's because he was a he was thinking big picture. He wasn't a person who was talking about what happened today with Clarence Thomas. He was talking about the larger philosophical things, the larger systematic problems. And that's why his stuff doesn't age because it is it, it, very little of it is calling out a specific event. Judd, on that same note like why why do you think we're seeing a a large swath of comedians these days kind of like fall into the reactionary right camp where you know they're railing against cancel culture and all of the things they can't say and you know and, and are often at times punching down onto groups like you know like trans people who or or any other marginalized groups rather than you know punching up like it always blows my mind that like there are literal fascists in this country and no one's making fun of them, but some comedians are choosing to take times out of their day to make fun of trans people. Like, why, why do you think that shift is happening? You know, I, I think that the concern with political correctness and cancel culture uh, is, is real for comedians because, as a comedian explained to me the other day, what happens is a pre- censorship so the world is basically saying you might get in trouble for something that you said and if you think about all the comedians who are getting in trouble it's very few and they're all still in the business and even the ones who got in trouble most of them are making a ton of money and selling a lot of tickets right but this friend of mine was saying everyone has watered down their act and that's really the danger that everyone is afraid and I think you hear about that on college campuses that people just feel like they can't have a robust debate and conversation about all of these things because uh, it is uh, fraught with peril. So I, I, I'm of two minds about it because I do think a lot of our edgiest comedians are finding a way to make it work and they have big audiences and they seem to be doing, doing well. But that is a danger. That's something that George Carlin talked about, which was uh, he felt like less speech was more dangerous uh, than more speech. But he didn't live through algorithms. He didn't live through things being jammed down your throat and conspiracy theories and, and the cruelty of uh, this you know electronic uh, media system where if you say the wrong thing, you might get 20,000 people tweeting at you uh, the vilest, most dangerous thing. So I, 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 I kind of drift back and forth on my positions on it because it is still evolving for me personally i'm trying to lift people up that's it i want to lift people up i want people to be nicer to each other i don't want to do stuff that hurts people 
there's a lot to discuss. We should be able to discuss everything. I don't think we all need to be so sensitive and we all have our personal line. And I just try to be thoughtful about what my line is. Okay, we have two last questions for you. Uh, and we're, here, here's, here they are. Uh, they're one, do you have a favorite George Carlin bit? And if we had to update Carlin's seven dirty words that you can't say on TV in 2022, which would you include? That's a very good question. I mean, my favorite bit, it's, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I do love the seven words you can't say on television because as a kid, you just, you just felt like the whole world opened up to you with it. Because when you're little, everyone's telling you, you can't handle this. You can't handle that. You can't say this word. And he was just saying, that's all bullshit. And words only have the, the, the meaning that you give them. It's all based on your intentions. And he, I think he, he looked, as a kid, you felt like, he wasn't talking down to me. And so when he was examining language and what you could say on TV, he just thought it was so stupid. You know, like when you go to England and they can say anything on TV and you're like, they're fine. <laughs> How come we, we, we can't say it here? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm, 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 I'm younger than you, I think, a little younger than you. And, and I feel like the person who broke some of that uh, uh, cone of silence uh, was Andrew Dice Clay. When I was going to camp, the person, you, you know, the, the rhymes with all the, all the words, I feel like we, I, maybe I was too young, but like it was less the message. It was more just hearing a guy say all that stuff was like, wow, I, I, I've never heard somebody even say stuff like that. Uh, but, but Carlin's better because Carlin actually had a, there was a political message behind it. Yes. I mean, he, he certainly wanted us to examine it and he thought, of course we, we should examine it and we should say it. And you know, what's the big deal? It's a distraction from the real problems to think you can't say certain words. I can't, I, I'm not a good, I'm not good at it. I don't have any words that I think should be on, on the list. I feel like that covers it. But I think at some point he listed like a few hundred more that, 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 that was an, another phase of his career where he's like, he would list like a hundred in a row. You know, he'd have to have this incredible memory to do these word runs. But that's one of the ones that he did. And also, you know, we never talk about it that much, but he he loved being silly and puerile and and a lot of his material was just dumb and, and goofy and gross. And that was also a big part of, of George Carlin. Judd Apatow, thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for being you. Thanks for so, so much for being a pal. And also... I mean this sincerely. Thank you for using your platform to make movies, to make documentaries like this. Because I, I really think this is, not everybody does what you do in the sense of making documentaries about serious issues while also doing, not that your stuff is unserious, but doing regular comedy. And I, I think it's really important that people like you actually take the time and effort to do it. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear my discussion with former gun industry executive Ryan Bussey, who details how the NRA and the gun industry made a key decision to abandon gun safety measures and turn military-style weapons into a political symbol. The NRA had meetings soon after the shooting, and they decided right then and there whether they were going to be a part of the solution which they debated and now uncovered tapes and transcripts 
or if they were going to just essentially become a culture war organization. You can hear that whole interview and get Lever Time Premium by subscribing to The Lever at levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of The Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events, and you directly fund our investigative journalism. And that's all for the criminally low price of just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review of Lever Time on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends to subscribe too. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. <laughs>